So you are having these two things, a massive overload of information, and then these people saying you can't trust any of it. And so it tends to encourage people to accept more extreme theories. Welcome back to the live drop. My guest is Cindy Otis, the author of True or False. Uh, She's a 10-year veteran of the CIA, where she worked mostly as a military analyst, but also served as an intelligence briefer to the White House and later as branch chief. She was a recipient of several awards. Now she works in cybersecurity, regularly speaking, writing about political and national security issues for various media outlets. She also continues her lifelong work advocating disability rights. Cindy was generous with her time and answered some of my questions about misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, uh, how to recognize it, and how to talk to people who just will not be convinced otherwise. Begin transmission now. I mean, there's a lot of information in here. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you have historical stuff, you have kind of analysis, there's like a how to guide as well. But um, also, your writing style is just very accessible and clear and um, personal. And it sounds, uh, yeah, I think this book is going to do wonderful. And I think it's important. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you saying that. I I wanted it to feel very personal, the reading experience. I, I wanted it to feel very personal. And I sort of had, I mean, it might sort of sound silly, but I sort of had this image in my mind when I was writing it of, okay, how would I speak to just you, Mark? If you and I were just, you know, hanging out, you know, you and I, random reader, we were just hanging out and you said, you know, I'm just feeling really overwhelmed with the kinds of information that I'm just um, sort of overloaded with each. Do you got any tips as a, a former CIA analyst who, you know, is used to this, this kind of, you know, information environment? And then just this book is my response to that, right? So that's the image that I had in my mind as I was writing it to try and strike a what I hope is a very like accessible and personal tone. Yeah. It's like, hey, let's go back. Let's talk about Ramses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, went, you went way back. Yeah. I went that. way back. Yeah. I read something recently about a Russian disinformation campaign about vaccines that was going on in 2018. You know, should we be aware that there's going to be a disinformation campaign about vaccines for COVID? Absolutely. Um, it's something that I'm working on um, a lot right now. So aside from the the sort of writing life that I lead um, in, in my actual professional life, um, I'm a disinformation investigator. Um, I work in the private sector hunting this stuff every single day. And, you know, in the book, I have one of the chapters that I that I have is about Russia's um, and then the Soviet Union's campaign to try to pin the blame um, of HIV AIDS when um, it became worldwide health crisis. Infection. Operation Infection. Yeah, exactly. So they actually have a very long <laughs> history of using covert influence to to spread conspiracy theories about, you know, health, particularly, uh, you know, health related information, and to use um, things like viruses, pandemics, um, health crises as a way of um, doing a couple things. So, um, and we're seeing it play out exactly the same right now during the coronavirus to target particular countries, to make it look like countries are either at fault for the particular health crisis or un- are unable to respond to the health crisis. So, 
what we're seeing with coronavirus is much like during the the Cold War with Operation Infection, they're very overtly and, you know, through inauthentic means as well, trying to promote the conspiracy that the coronavirus was created in a U.S. military weapons lab, much like they tried to push the claim that HIV AIDS was created in Fort Detrick, Maryland by the U.S. military. And what, of course, we worry about next in all of this is when a, a vaccine does actually come out, are people going to take the vaccine? Or will there have been so much disinformation by countries like Russia and others casting doubt about whether a vaccine works, whether it's being used for more nefarious purposes? You know, during the Cold War, they made it look like, you know, US aid workers who were going around trying to, you know, provide free vaccinations all over the world, and particularly in countries in Africa, that they were actually spreading HIV AIDS that way. That was one of the the claims that they pushed. And so, you know, are they going to push a sort of similar narrative? I mean, I'm counting on yes. So true or false is, you know, as you said, huge part of it is walking through these sort of historical case studies to show how narratives and things like that and strategies haven't really changed over the years. But of course, the massive difference between now and say, you know, the Cold War or Ramsey's, for example, is social media and technology, the internet, all of those things that allow disinformation and fake news to spread like never before and reach everyone in their homes all around the world all at once, potentially. So it's a huge difference. And it, you know, it makes our job much harder just in terms of for for folks like me who do these investigations, tracking all of it, just because of the sheer scale and scope of it and quantity. And then also it, it makes efforts to combat this really tough. How much of this conspiracy stuff is actually just kind of created domestically as you said, as a response to like cognitive dissonance, like you don't really understand what's going on and how much of it is mm-hmm. coming from the outside or being echoed from, you know, other players like Russians. Yeah, you've hit on such a such an enormous issue um, and an important one. So a lot of what is circulating now and certainly has circulated during times of crisis um, in other eras as well is, is is misinformation. So people spreading false information that they don't know is false, right? There's no, you know, necessarily malicious intent behind it, but but it spreads. And we're right now, we're calling this era sort of the infodemic because of the amount of false information circulating all at once. But the vast majority of what we're seeing, you know, now it is misinformation. And, you know, the Jade Helm era, other conspiracy theories that have gained ground over the years really do come from seeing something in in your life, not having an answer for it, and then jumping to conclusions that make sense to you, right? Conspiracy theories are are such a fascinating issue and something I spend a lot of time investigating and unpacking and seeing how they sort of travel between different belief groups. And in times like these, when we're dealing with the infodemic, it ends up creating or sort of encouraging people to lean towards those conspiracies. For most of us, I mean, this is a very unique time period. None of us have experienced a global pandemic like this in our lifetimes, the vast majority of people, at the same time that in the US, at least, we're dealing with some domestic unrest. And so our brains are in this very sort of like fight or flight mode, which takes down sort of automatically our our tendency to apply critical thinking skills. So we see, you know, rumors of like the Jade Helm kinds of rumors, you know, I saw a military vehicle, you know, driving down the road, oh my god, we're being, you know, invaded or martial law or, you know, something, something. 
when really you live next to a military base, maybe, <laughs> or, you know, yeah, um, yeah. the equipment being transported on trains, which is a very normal way of transporting military equipment between bases in the United States. And you've seen it maybe every six months for the last several years. But now under these new set of circumstances, it means something much more nefarious to your brain that is, again, in that sort of fight or flight mode. When if we weren't in that mode, we might think, oh, huh, that's kind of scary. But actually, I remember, you know, six months ago, this happened. Let me do some Googling. Oh, it turns out like I live between these bases and this is a normal transport route, like case closed. These sort of more nefarious kinds of reasons pop up uh, in our brains among, you know, from things that that really are ordinary or potentially have nothing to do with each other. So that's the other part of conspiracy theories is you're making conclusions or you're finding patterns and things that actually don't relate to each other. There is no connection. Um, it's not an A to B to C. Um, these things are completely unrelated. So yeah, it's a very interesting time that way as well, just the extent to which conspiracy theories are playing a role in how we're experiencing sort of our current political environment, our current health environment, and all of those things. And it's really, it is you know, shaping a lot of minds right now. Yeah, it seems like there's a few motivations going on. I mean, like you just said, you, you want to make sense of things. And, and what was one motivation where people just want an answer, they want to solve something, and they mm -hmm. want to soothe soothe their anxiety. Mm -hmm. There's other motivations which are which have either a social or political agenda. And then there's something else which is kind of creating this chaos or kind of fomenting a kind of constant instability. Are there any others? Yeah. I mean, one of the others that I would mention that I think is really interesting is it sort of creates a sense of community sometimes um, delving oh, yeah. into conspiracy groups and theories. You have like-minded individuals who are enlightened. They see the truth, right? They're these secret sort of insiders who like have broken the code, have interpreted the coded message correctly, and they know. And together, like you are sort of fighting against the system or you're educating other people or whatever. And right now, with so many folks in quarantine still, like myself, a sense of community is a huge motivator. You're missing those sort of personal connections. The also the, that sort of feeling of I'm special. I know I know the truth and the rest of the world doesn't. It appeals to our ego as well. It also appeals to that religious vacuum in a way, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. like almost a spiritual connection with people. Yeah. You have this other belief that's bigger than you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're in quarantine right now? Yeah. I mean... As a as somebody who is not interested in in seeing how this particular virus affects me, uh, yeah. quarantine continues. <laughs> you know, you'll talk to some people, and it just shocks me because they're they'll say, "Oh, I don't. This is just. I think it's all overrated." And mm -hmm. you know, it, it's really shocking just to run into some people that you realize, "Wow, you're in a completely different information silo <laughs> than I than I am." Well, I think part of the problem with with how we consume information is based entirely on our own personal experiences and perceptions. And, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, sort of how to, how personal biases affect how we interpret information, the information we go looking for and all of that. And, th and that plays is playing such a huge role right now in terms of how people see the threat of coronavirus. So a lot of it is dictated by, do you personally know somebody who has had coronavirus. And if you do, what was their experience? And we know from the coronavirus, from the research that's come out, 
that it affects people very differently. So you might know somebody who tested positive, but was completely asymptomatic. Um, you might know somebody who tested positive and it, it sort of hit them like a cold, or you might know somebody who died from it or was in the ICU and has now, you know, sort of a, a permanent disability has, has had their lungs destroyed and all of that. And that experience is, is huge in the extent to which people are taking this seriously. So for me, a, a lot of my being in quarantine has to do with the fact that I don't want to find out, you know, how it's going to affect me. Yeah. You know, the other piece of this is our understanding of science. So one of the things that I think is hugely fascinating is science and health related disinformation and misinformation, because it's one of those areas where the people who are who are spreading disinformation about health related topics or science related topics are absolutely playing to the fact that most of us know nothing about science. I mean, uh, you know, I have no idea how a virus works. Um, I know a little bit more now because of the pandemic and now, you know, having done research on it. But I don't know necessarily how 5G works, right? That's another huge conspiracy that's been percolating for quite a while now. Um, but I've noticed, if, just since I read your book, I've started noticing some other things. Like if something is complicated, right? If there isn't an easy explanation for it, then people are automatically judging it. Like this 5G, nobody's telling us how it works. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Suddenly that becomes a thing, right? It's like nobody tells you how your TV works, but you got no problem with that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I always am like, well, how much did you research, though? <laughs> because, like, right. don't take the answer is nobody's telling us anything about it when you don't actually read the news or scientific journals in which they do talk about it. You know, you don't go looking for those things. Don't sort of assume that an absence of stuff about it showing up in your personal feed without you having done anything to get that information is evidence that like someone's keeping it a secret. We'll often see, you know, claims of this is what the media doesn't want you to know. And it's like, well, actually, on this particular topic, all sorts of media outlets are reporting on it constantly. Do you read any of these sources, though? <laughs> you know, are you right, are you right. looking to see if they're reporting on it? Or is the absence of it in your feed sort of evidence to you that they're ignoring the issue? Well, if they're that hard to find, then I don't really trust them. <laughs> <laughs> I right? mean, yes, that is the next. I like how in the back you go back to this. Um, I mean, you must have read Tom Nichols' book, you know, the the death of expertise. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned something pretty fascinating. Like it was in the late eighteen hundreds, where science and all this stuff was relatively new to people. Mm -hmm. And then there was publications where mixing fiction with with actual science. But this was a new thing, and people people weren't trusting. They weren't trusting science, or they weren't trusting you know what printed or what what they were being told. So essentially in 1835, a newspaper called The Sun printed a bunch of articles claiming that there was a civilization of a bunch of sort of fantastical creatures on the moon, including you know, little little naked men with um, the sort of bat-like men with wings that collected things off of the moon and just sort of an odd combination of creatures. And they yeah. attributed these quote unquote findings to an actual, he was an actual person, a respected astronomer. His name was Sir John Herschel. And people at the time, science, again, science, very new thing. No one had a telescope at home, let alone, you know, access to one in sort of any other environment, really. And so the moon had always sort of been this mysterious thing. And so when the sun came out with these, after the fact, sort of satirical or fictionalized articles, people 
thought, you know, that's very reasonable. I have no idea what's on the moon. Um, why wouldn't there be little bat-like men, uh, <laughs> you know, flitting about on the surface of the moon? And it's very similar to today where any sort of science-related or health-related problem in which there's not an easy solution. Coronavirus is a perfect example of we're still learning day to day, right, about how this virus works, what the actual impact is, let alone what a you know a potential vaccine or cure could be for it. And so, you know, guidance has changed from health institutions that we traditionally look to for the latest and the, you know, the most accurate information. And that hasn't helped at all. Because of these, you know, organizations saying in January, you don't need to wear a mask, then later coming out and saying, well, science, (laughs) new findings in science, show us, in fact, you should wear a mask. That is ideally in a pandemic kind of situation. That is what an organization should, should try to stay away from. It's really hard, though, when the science is changing, findings are coming out, you're learning more and more each day, because cases are still spreading. So you're dealing with, you know, sort of a growing sample pool to even study in the first place. But for all of us, you know, it's tough, because the vast majority of us are not scientists, the vast majority of us are not, even if we are scientists, don't specialize in viruses. We don't have a home lab that we can go and do our own tests to verify. And so it it makes it much more dependent on, you know, kinds of media literacy kinds of things that we can employ to make sure that we're at least finding good sources of information, as opposed to, you know, the folks who are trying to, you know, potentially take advantage of this situation to spread false information, or just, you know, spreading false information, but they don't know that they are. There's something in American culture, maybe world culture, where we really tend to overrate conviction. We like to be right. You know, we like to be right. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. Most of us prefer to sort of glide about the world with some level of confidence because it's simply, you know, just easier to survive that way. The world is tough, right? But that can lead to overconfidence and a sort of trusting more than we should our own personal convictions, as you said, rather than expert opinion from actual, again, experts. I will say that viruses and science don't care about political opinions. They don't care about, you know, biases. Science sort of is what it is. Um, A virus will behave regardless of whether a politician or someone with a personal conviction thinks that it should behave that way or not. So I will always trust an expert's opinion about a virus more than I will ever trust people outside of that space. Yeah, but the people outside of that space are the people that how do you deal with people in your personal life that will just make some broad assumption that isn't really based on any fact? Like, you know, people just create conspiracies, tiny conspiracies all the time. Do you just sort of nod your head and go along with that? Or do you maybe point it out to people? Yeah. So this is the number one question I get asked by people. How do I talk to my family and friends? How do I point (laughs) out times when they're spreading, you know, provably false information? How do I have constructive conversations? How do I convince them and all of that? It's tough. So I'm going to say outright that it's absolutely tough. Because as Americans, we're now putting you in charge of that. So just <laughs> once this once this book comes out, you are the one that is going to be in charge of that. So yeah, I'll be brought into every family conversation and fight. Please do not. Hi, hi this is Cindy. Cindy Otis, author of True or False, to sort it out. I definitely have heard from from folks who have ordered my book and said, I ordered it for particular family members. Everyone in my family is getting this for Christmas, their birthdays, you know, holidays. Book is just going to like, sh- it's going to show up like a coffee table. Yeah. I, think yeah. it, I think it is. I also think I'm probably going to get a lot of emails from family members who are like, I didn't want your book. And my, you know, my son, brother, friend, whatever, gave it to me. This we'll is see. about <laughs> me. This is about me, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, I wrote it yeah. for you. Do you see an influence from this kind of rise in disinformation age in, in how people are communicating with each other personally? Yeah, no, absolutely. So a couple a couple of things that I think are really important about that. One, because we are all facing an unprecedented time in, in just the sheer amount of information that we're all consuming on a daily basis. So we have our social media feeds, people are sharing content. We have a gazillion, and that's an exact number, websites that we can go to. That's not an exact number, but a gazillion different websites we can go to. Google is endless. Our you know search engines are en- endless. You can go basically anywhere on the internet, do anything, find anything. That is a lot for a human brain to try to process on a on a daily basis. And so it has sort of like those things that I was talking about earlier, it has sort of increased the sort of panic in our brains. Even when when times are sort of good for us in general, we still have that sort of panic in our minds of like, there's just a lot, a lot of information out there. And we don't know necessarily how to parse through it. What sources can we trust? What can we rely on to be true? Um, and that sort of thing. But we also have this other this other thing happening at the same time where various groups and governments and people and politicians, organizations, et cetera, are pushing the narrative that you can't trust anything. So you are having these two things, a massive overload of information, and then these people saying you can't trust any of it. And so it tends to encourage people to accept more extreme theories. So that's that's just a massive problem. I think it's really important to understand how that how that works and how that's affecting other people. I've been thinking a lot about recently about how important for folks like me who do these investigations on a daily basis, how important it is for us to have to to be able to empathize and have compassion for for the people out there that are sharing information because it helps, you know, I think it's really helped me better analyze narratives see how narratives are shifting and evolving, see how narratives are spreading and how it's affecting different communities. So I think, you know, sort of going back to your earlier question and how this all relates about how do you have these conversations, I do think that sort of approaching it from a place of empathy and compassion is going to set you on a better foot for these conversations than if you were approaching it from a place of, I need to tell them that they're wrong and I need them to come over to my side. I need to win the argument. I need them to you know, say, yes, I was wrong. And now I believe what you believe, right? So I think that's sort of an important first step, you know, to share like sort of a, this is how it sort of personally affects me. I will say that, you know, I'm a former CIA officer, I served at the CIA for, for 10 years. And I have people in my close network who legit believe in the deep state. So the conspiracy that um, this deep state group is working every day to undermine um, the current administration. I know from my own personal experience that that is that the theory is not at all true in any way, shape, or form. And it's been an interesting experience to try to have conversations with these people in my in my network, in which I say, you know, you trust me, don't you? You know that I worked where I did. You know that I worked as hard as I possibly could to protect the United States and our interests. You know that I'm a good person, right? I'm telling you the deep state does not exist. It's made up. What you have is federal servants who are legitimately just trying to advance the country. And they get to the point of saying, I know you're a good person. I know that you worked really hard, but maybe you just don't know about this, this deep state. Maybe it happened without <laughs> you, right? Maybe, maybe, and they're using compassion too. Maybe, Cindy, they just didn't ask you to join. 
I know. I didn't get my membership invite. I raised that to say, like, I'm not always successful in having these conversations. But I do think that there are a couple of, of ways that can make the, the conversations more productive. The first one I mentioned was not sort of confronting them with a, an, you know, an aggressive or a mindset of I'm going to win this conversation because that's not helpful. The other point I sort of encapsulated in my story about how I've experienced these kinds of conversations where I try to make um, a personal connection, right? So you know that I worked at the agency, you know that I'm a good person, therefore, right? Because so much, as we talked about earlier, so much of the way that people interpret what's happening around them or the information that they're seeing is from that personal perspective. So to the extent that you can personalize an issue for them, for example, you know, if someone is is promoting ideas that climate change is a hoax or something like that, you can personalize the issue by saying, okay, we live near a body of water. You've seen that water get polluted by X, Y, and Z factors. You've seen it, you know, turn the water into something unusable. You've seen it affect the plant life. You've seen it affect the wildlife, and et cetera, et cetera. Now imagine that's happening to the oceans and it's happening to our air and it's happening to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Why wouldn't that have an effect on those things when you are personally experiencing the effects of pollution yourself in your hometown, right? That approach can be successful sometimes, or at least make the issue something they can relate to a little more. The last thing that I would say is sort of an unhelpful way of doing it is I think a lot of conversations um, stop at the, you know, we disagree on this issue. This, you know, person A musters their politically biased sources to prove their point and person B musters their own politically biased sources to prove their point. And never the two sides will meet in that case. It's just not going to go anywhere. And so staying away from, I've brought my sources, you've brought their, you know, your sources, and we're just never going to see eye to eye. It's usually unhelpful to have that kind of conversation. You wrote that the objective of fake news isn't always, isn't necessarily to change somebody's mind, but it's to reinforce whatever the beliefs or biases that already exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't have a question. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just I trying to impress you with something that I read the book. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I love chatting with people who've read it. I guess my next question, the next question I had was, and you've kind of already answered it, is like, how do you change someone's mind? I mean, how do you actually change? Or should we, should we try? Should we just try to like strengthen our base, you know, and, <laughs> and move on? Yeah. I mean, the part that you reference of the book is to make the point that it was in the context of the the presidential election in 2016 and the amount of disinformation coming from foreign actors, but also domestic actors who were using false information to, to push particular narratives. You know, the good news is the likelihood of somebody going from super extreme on this particular opinion to the complete opposite opinion based off of one meme or one article or something, you know, fake news article or something like that is is very, very small. I mean, it's almost non-existent, right? It's more the steady diet, I guess, is how I would frame it, of false, misleading, and sensational content that slowly, you know, leads a person from point A to point B. And so the risk there is if we allow that steady diet to continue, if that person is never exposed to other information, if they're never taught the critical thinking skills or digital media literacy skills um, that they need to question what they're seeing, and instead they just continue down this same path, that's when you get people who are firmly entrenched in their in their views. But you know, we saw in 2016, it's not like 
someone was a was a Hillary Clinton supporter, they saw a meme saying she was corrupt, and then they the next day became a Trump supporter. That's not how it worked. It was largely people who were already politically leaning a you know a particular way who just continued to you know accept that steady diet of of misleading content that just made them more convinced that they were right. You went back to the um, yellow journalism. It essentially took. You mentioned at the time that after yellow journalism, the Spanish-American War, and I mean thousands of deaths, that Americans finally realized, or somebody realized, that we need to have some some journalistic standards here. Mm-hmm. And do you see any parallels with that and the issues with Facebook right now? I mean, are they publishers or are they the air we breathe? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of really interesting things happening now that I think we can see some parallels in the sort of yellow journalism time frame. So. Because of the internet, and I, I walked through this in true or false, you know, the sort of the sort of question of, of who is a publisher, what is media, uh, definitely came into into question. So you had, you know, traditional media outlets that were still printing their newspapers, but then you had everyone who was like, I know, like my voice is important, my experience is important, I'll start a blog. And from there, you know, out of blogs, things like independent media outlets were established. And we're seeing increasingly one of the things that I spend a lot of my time working on these days is hunting all of the the websites that have popped up in recent years that claim to be quote unquote news, but are actually run by a company, a company that might be potentially a political consulting firm. So the content they're publishing is not quote unquote news as we define it. Um, it might be, you know, a private for-profit company that, you know, says it does cybersecurity or something like that. Um, it might be a PR firm that's running it. It, you know, it might, be, you know, a lobbyist or something like that that's running a quote unquote news site. And so it's it's forcing a lot of conversations, though I wish there was more conversation right now and debate about where do these things fall when we're talking about disinformation and tactics that look a lot like disinformation, these kinds of initiatives fall a lot in those categories. And so are we going to make it acceptable? Are we just going to let it become normal because we're not doing anything and therefore we've normalized it and this is considered acceptable? Or do we really want, you know, political campaigns or consulting firms working for political campaigns running quote unquote news sites and calling it news? Is that something we should accept from political campaigns? It's not something I want, frankly. Or if they do run sites, I want it to be very clear on the sites who's paying for it, what this company is, who they represent, all of those things. So Facebook is sort of a part of all of that. The con- it's, it gets used, and of course, other social media platforms, they get used as sort of points along the roadmap for these sites to push out and disseminate their content and also drive traffic to their sites as well. It's a way of pushing out narratives. I think a lot of my concerns when it comes to social media platforms, as well as things like ad tech companies and data companies, is the sheer amount of information that all of them together are collecting on every single one of us, and we don't even know. You go onto a website, you go onto a social media platform, you think, you know, if you have to sign in, all you're giving them is your email address, for example. That's simply not true. We're essentially allowing them to create complete pictures of their users, detailed pictures. So, you know, and and putting trackers into their sites that then follow us around the internet. So they can build these very um, detailed pictures of who's coming to their sites, what are they interested in, what are they clicking on, where do they go next, um, what content are they responding to, right? And they can use that then to feed us additional content that's much more targeted us, targeted to us 
that then keeps us clicking over and over and over again. And then they'll sell the data too to other companies that we never even, you know, we never visited their website, we never went onto their platform, and somehow they have our data. When you mirror that, so I have a cybersecurity background as well. When you mirror that with things like cybersecurity kinds of tactics, hacking, phishing schemes, things like that, or just basic software that allows companies to use all of the gathered data and then run it against like personally identifying software that matches it to names, addresses, phone numbers, all of that. It's really, really scary. And most of this, the average sort of information consumer has no idea that it's going on. And social media has a huge piece of that problem. And it's just not something that we're addressing in the United States. I remember when I first started, I remember when I first went to the grocery store and they said, do you have a card? Are you a member? And I remember thinking, uh, I don't know. I'm not like, a, what is this? Like a lounge or something? <laughs> you have like, you have a bar in the back. Why, why, why does a grocery store have like a club now? And they're like, well, you'll save money. All you have to do yeah. is fill out this information. Yep. And I think that's sort of where it started, right? That, yep. well, I mean, obviously other ways, but you know, you write down your address and all this other, then you start getting junk in the mail and then things, they start keeping track of what you buy and. Yep. And then and now it's online as well. I mean, yeah, give me your email address, Mark. Like I can find you. <laughs> you know, just give me an email yeah. address. There's a lot that you can do by giving someone like me um, or someone with an investigative background something as simple as an email address. And that's the basics of what these websites are collecting. There's a whole lot more on top of that that they're collecting that makes it much easier um, for, for folks to be targeted. Wow. Should you be, how, how often should we be changing our email addresses or does that really even matter? Well, I mean, there, I can talk about tips all day long, but, um, just a little free tip I'm trying to get here. A little free tip. I have an email address that I exclusively use for signing up for things. And that's it. That is what that email address is used for. It's not for signing up for things that are connected to personally identifying information. But like if I want a coupon for, you know, to get 20% off at a online clothing boutique, I get, you know, I sign up with that email address, right? And that sort of thing. From a separate hosting site or is it just separate ho- hosting site or well, or is it just like another Gmail address? It could be Gmail. It could be ProtonMail. I like ProtonMail. Something secure. Something secure. It seems like the, just the just the scale of all the information, these news sites you're talking about, it seems like a solution. Obviously, there's some of these filtering sites. For, I've done the one where it says, like, what, what is what percentage, what's the likelihood that you're a bot, where it kind of looks over all your tweets. You mentioned some of these, you mentioned a lot of other sites in your book as well. How effective are these, and are they going to be used more extensively, and are there, are there dangers as well? A lot of the tools that are available right now to do exactly as you said, you know, check for automation um, in social media accounts or sort of nefarious activities by websites and things like that. A lot of them are still very much at the nascent stages. So these tools are mostly useful at this point for being sort of a first indication that something might not be quite right. But then you have to do additional work. Part of it is, you know, tools that check for automation. It's not easy to find what their calculations are based on. Um, and a lot of tools in recent years, I won't name names because people are trying, you know, people are people are trying to fix this issue. But I will say a lot of these tools, because disinformation actors are increasingly moving away from automation because it's easier to spot, the tools sort of get more and more general, looking at, you know, sort of factors that that aren't necessarily um, a sign of of nefarious activities. So for example, I, you know, there was one tool that I ran against my followers at one point, and it was saying, you know, 50% of your followers, there's something nefarious about them. And I actually, because I'm a nerd, will just 
put it out there. Um, I do actually look at who's following me when somebody, you know, follows me on Twitter. I'm, I do look into them a little bit and absolutely 50% of my followers are not, you know, are not nefarious actors. So it's something, it's sort of something that you, you referenced earlier about how conversations these days are being influenced by sort of disinformation in the current information environment. One of the risks of tools like these, it can end up amplifying the idea that you can't trust anything, that disinformation is everywhere, that Russia pulls the puppet strings, that they, you know, everyone's a bot, everyone's a Russian, uh, if they don't agree with you and that sort of thing. So the tools, I think, you know, in the next couple of years, we'll see some gains in how useful and accurate these tools are. But really, people should be looking at them as sort of just a starting place for further research. It also would get into like AI mm-hmm. as well, where even if it is, isn't written by a machine, that something could start to pick it up like, oh, here here are some telltale signs. I mean, even from your book, people are saying, you know, as soon as those three words, you know, show up in something, right. it starts to red flag. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I always push is that it's got to be all solutions have to be a combination of some level of automation because of the scale and scope of this issue with also human investigation. So, for example, if there was automation at looking at emails, for example, for scammers or phishing campaigns or something like that, emails that I get from my dad would be flagged <laughs> because he'll send me, you know, uh, hey, look at this in the subject line and the email is just a link. And, <laughs> you know, I will have to text him. I text <laughs> yeah. him all the time and I'm like, dad, just want to make sure like your account didn't ha- get hacked. Is this from you? And he's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's for me. And it's, it's just a link to a picture, <laughs> like a pretty picture of some, you know, other country that he thinks I'd like to visit someday. <laughs> that's kind of an awkward question to, ask, to have to ask people now like don't hacked. were you <laughs> hacked <laughs> you know they might yeah. take it first like um no i wasn't i actually sent that to you oh i'm just uh my parents are used to it luckily no i've not been hacked for the 10th <laughs> time you said something about doing a lot of work like looking at the lifespan of, of some of these uh conspiracy narratives and i was just wondering do you see any do you see any patterns like in the life story of a conspiracy I mean, I think one thing that I would raise on that is the tendency that conspiracy theories come back, they get recycled over and over again. And then sort of their their past record of, of being out there is used as sort of evidence of it being true. So conspiracy theories about chemtrails, I mean, people still believe in chemtrails. Um, people still believe in flat earth stuff, um, anti-vax stuff that has been thoroughly debunked over the years, decades at this point, continues to just be recycled. And it's going to be, you know, it's being reused now as we look towards hopefully having a coronavirus vaccine. Same with the Pizzagate kinds of conspiracy theories from, from 2016, in which folks charged primarily prominent Democrats with running a child sex trafficking ring out of a, the basement of a pizza parlor um, in Washington, D.C., that Crazy amount of people still believe that, though. Crazy amount still believe it. Oh, yeah. 24% of of everyone who voted for Trump. Oh, yeah. Uh, So it continues to be recycled. There's a new iteration of it now um, that's just popped up in the last two weeks. So between Pizzagate and now, you know, uh, QAnon supporters have continued to push the idea that different celebrities, politicians, companies, etc. are, you know, uh, part of this totally fake sex trafficking ring. And the new iteration of it is that the US-based furniture and home decor company Wayfair is now a ringleader in this, you know, sex trafficking network that came out and went viral um, two weeks ago now. 
but sort of the, you know, the the fake evidence that was mounted to push Pizzagate is what's being used now as evidence to support, you know, the new target, which is this this furniture company. Yeah, QAnon. I'm just thinking of all the things we didn't talk about. QAnon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, my God. The other thing I would mention about um, patterns and conspiracy theories is that it's been interesting to watch, especially now, how different groups have sort of co-opted or amplified particular conspiracy theories when they don't necessarily share the conspiracy theories that the originating group peddles. So that's sort of a complicated way of saying, for example, you know, during the whole reopen protests um, in the United States in which people were coming out to um, push for states to end lockdowns and quarantines and things, some of the reopen protesters were also anti-vaxxers. Some of the anti-vaxxers were also pushing sort of Second Amendment rights um, things, but being an anti-vaxxer and a Second Amendment uh, supporter are not necessarily the same groups. And then now the sort of QAnon side of things, QAnon has tapped into a lot of the anti-vaxxing narratives, but not all anti-vaxxers are QAnon supporters. So it's really interesting to see conspiracy groups sort of pick and put together, piece together different parts of different conspiracy theories um, or co-opt them in some cases and then push them themselves, um, but not pick up on other narratives. Um, it's really fascinating, but that's, you know, that's something that's been pretty consistent with conspiracy theory groups, you know, throughout time. So is there like a, like a counter force to, you know, QAnon people that are building conspiracies? I mean, is there some sort of crowdsourced, I just imagine that you have like thousands and thousands of secret followers who are like, this crowdsourced group that's also trying to point out disinformation, you know, that's, that's kind of fighting the good fight. Cool. Know? I like that idea. Is that going on? <laughs> you're running it, you're running it out of your, your room. Right you weren't supposed to know. Yeah. No, um, no, I do. I, I do like that idea. You know, uh, people are really struggling in organizations and companies and at the political level with how to combat, you know, how to combat this issue. There are a couple of things we know one is you don't want to do more harm than good. So from my perspective, that means you don't want to combat disinformation by pushing out disinformation. And I feel very strongly about that. You also don't want to publicly expose a disinformation campaign if it wasn't actually gaining traction in the first place, because then you're just you know amplifying it in a way it wasn't being amplified before. So what's the point in sort of you know highlighting it? Oh, so you're talking about not, I mean, this isn't just retweeting something, this not just screenshotting instead of retweeting, you're talking about don't even, you're saying don't even, don't even mention it. Yeah, I mean, there are some cases in which, in which it makes no sense, you know, if it's not going viral, if it's not, go, you know, getting off of very sort of fringe platforms and making it into mainstream platforms or, you know, the media, if it's circulating amongst, uh, you know, a handful of people, if you expose it, Say I share something to, you know, I've got 29,000 Twitter followers and I take something that was being shared by 12 people on some fringe platform nobody goes to except for those 12 people. And I share it on mine to say, look, this is wrong. I have amplified it exponentially in a way it was never getting amplified before, in part because there will always be people who say, well, you're ex-CIA. And since I don't trust CIA Anything that you say isn't true probably is. So I'm going to share it. You know, there must be another side. There must be another side. Yes. Or people will share it being like, oh, you know, look at look at what Cindy exposed. Everyone should be aware of this. And then it gets shared, you know, thousands and thousands of more times. And again, you have that population that's like, well, 
if people are saying it's not true, it probably is. And then they're sharing it. So you're just making a, a much worse problem. No such thing as bad publicity for misinformation. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, the best things that all of us can do are things like, again, making sure that you're not amplifying it yourself. And that comes, that starts with knowing how to spot the stuff yourself, which was the whole point, the whole point of true or false to give people some tools and tactics that they can employ in their own sort of daily lives that aren't too arduous that really will contribute to improving our information spaces and making sure that we're not, you know, adding to the problem. Cindy, thanks for writing this book. Thank you for reading it. And thank you for being on the live drop. This has really been enjoyable and informational. Thanks for having me. It was fun. That was my chat with Cindy Otis, the author of True or False, a CIA analyst guide to spotting fake news. You can find out more about Cindy at cindyotis.com. She's also on Twitter at at cindyotis. Um, I really want to recommend this book. I mean, it talks about disinformation, misinformation, the history of it, uh, the roots, you know, the motivations behind it, the ways to spot it, the ways to avoid it. She goes into conspiracies as well. And uh, I hope you pick it up and maybe give it to your, uh, give it to your um, irascible uncle who just refuses to change his mind about anything. Um, That's all I got. Thanks for listening. End of transmission.